0: When an entrepreneur comes to me with a huge vision for a business, I always start to think about where can they start? Because most entrepreneurs want to jump to the dream business. They want the huge restaurant. They want the shop with their name above the title. They want all these things at the start, but they don't always want to do the pre-steps that it takes to get there. And I'm always excited to find out where the companies come from. Today's episode, I've got Zev Siegel with me one of the co-founders of Starbucks and I'm really interested to find out where did Starbucks start because all of the biggest businesses in the world started somewhere the extraordinary belongs to those that created rebelling against business plans and debt rebelling against what society expects of us to build cool businesses make money have fun and do good let's create something extraordinary together Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur. Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur. And I'm very excited to have with me today Zev Siegel, who's one of the co founders of Starbucks. And Zev now travels around the world presenting at conferences and inspiring entrepreneurs of the future. And I'm really interested to talk to Zev about his experience of Starbucks and helping entrepreneurs.
1: Zev, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Alan.
0: Me too. I'm very excited about this episode. As I said, today Starbucks has 30,000 stores across 78 different countries. Where do you even begin with a business like that? Where was store number one? How did it all start, Zev?
1: Well, Alan, you know, there was a store number one, and it still exists. (laughs) Uh, It's become a tourist destination as well as a local coffee bar. It's in Seattle's Central Market, which is called the Pike Place Market. And Every morning, there is a line in front of the store, which stays all day in normal times. And the line includes 50% people from Asia, uh, Korea, Japan, and China, because Starbucks has become enormously popular there. And they want to see the original store. Well, the original store was built starting in January of 1971 by the three founders. And when I say it was built by the three founders... I mean, literally, it was built by the three founders, hammers and saws and paintbrushes. We were slightly undercapitalized with our first store, as as are many (laughs) entrepreneurs. So we made up for our uh, lack of investment capital, our own money, by doing what's called in the United States, sweat equity, that is working to do things that you can't afford to pay others. Today, Sweat Equity is frequently writing code at night and on weekends to create a new software product. It's the same thing. You do things yourself that you can't afford to pay other people to do.
0: Absolutely. So were you the hammer, saw, or paintbrush?
1: I was the furniture guy. (laughs) (laughs) I built all of the fixtures in the store, the shelves, the coffee bins with my own hands in the basement of my parents' home. Oh in wow. seattle washington it was quite a project i was way beyond my skill set <laughs> and you didn't have
0: youtube to look up videos to learn back then
1: well that raises another point yes that's correct we didn't have computers we didn't have youtube we thought the fax machine was pretty exciting <laughs> uh and you know when you do research which all entrepreneurs have to do at that time, research uh, in the uh, fall of 1970, before we started building the store in 71, the research at that time was really primitive. It was just like research you would have done uh, you know, in the year 1900. You went to the library, uh, <laughs> and then you talked to people. Today, it's so much better. I love the kind of research that I'm able to do, but especially that my um, clients, uh, the entrepreneurs that I help, can do. It's fast and really deep today.
0: Yeah, the data so, uh, available today is We phenomenal. were doing
1: research to find out if our brilliant idea to open a coffee bar was actually a good idea or not. And we also had to find out if it was something that we could realize, my two partners and I. We were friends. And uh, gradually, as we dug in learning more and more about the coffee industry, we discovered, number one, there weren't very many companies in the world like we had in mind there were a few. We wanted a really high end gourmet coffee bean store, not a coffee bar like your listeners are imagining right now. This was a place where you went to buy coffee beans to take home and brew really excellent coffee. We eventually, during our research, decided that yes, this was something that would probably work, even though it was a new idea in a well established business. You know, at the time, coffee had been around for 400 years. <laughs> but, uh, in the United States, and in most of the world, coffee had reached an abysmally low quality in, by 1970.
0: I think we're still there in England at the moment. <laughs> uh, we still, well, instant is still a thing in my parents' generation, but I think my generation likes it a little bit different. But things have changed over the years. So you started, it wasn't even a coffee shop, it was a where you buy the beans to brew at home.
1: Yes, when you came in to the store, our first store, you saw running down the right-hand side of the store a long line of bins, 20 individual coffee bins. And in each one, there was a different coffee. Sometimes they were a blend of coffees. And they had all been fresh roasted in our little roaster, which was not in the store. So why didn't you
0: start with a coffee bar? Like, was there a reason you went to the... What was the reason for that?
1: Starbucks wasn't in the coffee bar business at all until the early 1980s. And the reason for that was there was no market for it. Espresso-based beverages were really not very, I mean, they were not seen in Seattle and in most of the Western United States. We would have had to introduce the entire idea of a coffee bar. So instead, we introduced the idea of fresh roasted coffee beans. We also sold a huge array of equipment. We educated our customers for a decade giving away samples and talking about coffee. We eventually had six stores in Seattle, and we also had 300 wholesale customers, most of which were local restaurants. And that was a really smart thing. Looking back, a really smart thing because it enabled us to spread our educational net a little broader. People went into restaurants, had an unusually good cup of coffee, saw our name featured on the menu, and started looking for us. So gradually, by the end of the 1970s, a few of our wholesale customers were actually selling espresso. They were coffee carts, these are little carts on wheels, and in some cases, coffee bars. So we observed these wholesale customers as they started to increase their sales volume, but Starbucks did not open, did not install an espresso machine and begin selling espresso based drinks until about 1981 more than a decade after the company was established. It's completely um, lost now because Starbucks is so tightly tied in people's imaginations to the beverage.
0: Yes, that's the first thing I think of is walking into the store and buying the drink. That is the image I have of that exact thing.
1: Well, if you had encountered me in in our first store, I worked there for quite a while, uh, I would have given you a sample of coffee and it told you all about it where it was roasted and uh, where it was grown and why it was different than some of our other coffees. And that was how it all began. But we didn't sell you a coffee beverage.
0: I love that. So the idea is essentially education-based sales. So people come in and you teach them something and then help them decide on a product. Did you know you were doing education-based sales?
1: Absolutely. It was totally conscious. And I was the person at Starbucks who was responsible for training our retail staff In the fine art of building long term relationships through coffee. I love long term relationships and uh, I'm actually reaping the benefit of that at this point in my life. It was uh, natural for me and I explained how to do it with other people.
0: So, how do you build, like if I'm starting off a new business, how do I build a long term relationship? How do I even have that in mind when I'm just desperate to make the first sale?
1: (laughs) That's so interesting. it's not difficult, Alan, and some people know how to do it naturally. It's important to take an interest in your customer. You know, you're, you might be imagining some kind of a bake shop or espresso bar, but this also applies if you're selling an industrial product to manufacturers. It's, it's the same. You have to think about life from the point of view of your customer. What would be interesting and appealing to them that has to do with your product? You build the relationship by discussing those things. You're constantly thinking, okay, what does the customer think about what I'm saying right now? How could I make the bond between us much greater? What kind of a question should I ask that customer? A frequent question that we asked was, tell me how you brew your coffee at home. Oh, I love that and, question. And, and And then they would go on and on about how they brew coffee at home and then we'd give them a sample and they'd go, oh my gosh, this tastes so much better than what I'm brewing at home. Those are some of the ways. But in general, taking an interest and providing free information and education is what it takes. I see that a lot in the software industry, where a group of young entrepreneurs has come up with a new, what I call niche software, something that addresses a specific need in a particular area of life type of business, for example. And they... Have to explain it to people, and they have to demonstrate how it's going to solve a problem for the customer and make their life better so if for instance, if it's a software that makes it easier to operate a a solar panel installation company, the kind of company that goes out in the field and puts solar panels on the roofs of buildings and homes, well, you have to identify with that industry and then you have to start thinking about well, where's the pain here that my software is going to relieve what will this do to make the life better you know and uh, you know it might be labor saving if it's a labor saving and you're selling these uh, this software to small companies that have you know five employees maybe you can when you're talking to the decision maker you can indicate what he might be able to do with the amount of money that he would save using your software and you might even want to quantify it in terms of um, I know Sally that you really like to go to the Cotswolds. How would you like to be able to buy a cottage there? Have you thought about that? Well, the amount of money you'd save on using the software might enable you to make the payments on that cottage. That's a you know kind of an extreme example, but it has to be brought down to the personal level with the customer.
0: Yes. It's fun to do too. Well, I think one thing I'd love to highlight from what you've said that I think is so powerful is that first question you used to ask when you were in store of how do you brew your coffee at home? And what I've noticed is most entrepreneurs get so in their head about what they do, they forget to ask the person in front of them the question about what they do, which is how you uncover where the value is, what the problem is, the pain that you can help. And it's that first question.
1: Yes. And clearly, if the entrepreneur is doing all of the talking in a conversation with a customer, there's something wrong. The entrepreneur acting as a sales representative for his own company has to involve the sales prospect, the person they're talking to in the conversation and enable them to speak because if they don't speak, there's no sale.
0: Yes. I love that. So Zev, One of the things you said right at the start about making the furniture in the basement of the house, (laughs) I love that. What assets did you have at the start? Like, Were you well-backed? What skills did you have? Like, There's three of you coming together to build this thing.
1: Alan, that's a really good question. What assets did the founders of Starbucks have that enabled them to be successful? We had each other. That's number one. And as it turned out, though, we weren't quite aware of it in the beginning, our skill sets were complementary. There was almost no overlap at all in what each of us turned out to be really good at. I was very good. You know, I'm an outgoing guy uh, with the people and uh, educating our team. Uh, I took an interest in our tea business, which was a minor part of the company. Jerry Baldwin became a great financial manager for the company, which made a huge difference. And he also had, took a great interest in coffee, Gordon Bowker, the third partner, really was a deep thinker about the relationship between organizations and their potential audience. And he actually made a separate career out of solving those problems for large companies. So the three of us had very little overlap in our skills. So that gave the company, at the very beginning, three guys who were very well-adjusted people and had amongst the three of them. A tremendous number of skills. That was one of our assets. We had a little bit of money. Starbucks was started for about $9,000 US dollars in 1970. That's very little money. I mean, I suppose that amount might be about $50,000 today, and that would be very little money to start a coffee company today. We had the ability to invest a tremendous amount of our time, sweat equity that we've talked about, and we had something equally important, we had a fabulous mentor, a coach. This is a man who probably was at that time the most knowledgeable person in North America about gourmet coffee, how it's grown, uh, how to roast it, uh, marketing it, operating retail stores, doing wholesale business. Uh, His name was Alfred Pete, and his company, Pete's Coffee, had been established five years before us in what was called the bay area in the united states that's the area around san francisco and i did something that i have encouraged entrepreneurs to do ever since when i discovered that this company existed through my research in the library really an amazing thing if you stop to think about it There's a guy in a library who's. I was looking at phone books from around the country. This is what you did in 1970. And I discovered that there was a company, and then I started trying to find stories about them by looking at newspapers from around the country. And Alfred Pete's company, Pete's Coffee, just really stood out. I picked up the phone and called him. And by some miracle, he was available and talked to me. He heard what I had to say. You know, three young guys in Seattle want to start a coffee company. And he said, you know, Zev, you should come down here to San Francisco. You can see one of my stores and experience it. And then I'll take you to my little roasting plant and we'll talk about coffee. And I did what I hope every entrepreneur would do. I went to San Francisco. I I had an old car. I drove it there. It's over a thousand miles. And when I got there, I did visit his store, one of his stores. And it was a fabulous place, jammed with customers and Many, I think there were six crooks behind the counter, a long counter. They were selling coffee beans and tea leaves. That was really a magic moment for me, entering that store. And then he did take me to his little roasting plant, and we did sit and talk. He did, he, you know, he did everything he said he would do. We did talk about the coffee business, but then something happened that was beyond the pale. He said, looking at his watch, and he said, "You know, it's getting late in the day. Why don't we go have a glass of wine?" And we went to an outdoor cafe. This was in Berkeley, California, near San Francisco. And we sat for another hour or two talking. And at the end of that conversation, Mr. Pete, who by this time I was idolizing, said, you know, Zev, if you and your partners decide to go ahead with this, I'd be happy to be a coach to you. Wow. Yeah. Wow is the correct reaction, Alan. It was a wow moment, a real break for us. So now we had another asset. We had. A coach who was really at the pinnacle of what was possible in uh, coffee in the United States.
0: One thing I'd love to highlight from there is something that I think you did really well was you looked up his number and you rung him. And I think, (laughs) like, I know in those days you had options—you could write a letter or you could fax. But it is unbelievable the number of modern-day people that will do anything to avoid picking up the phone and ringing. They will email. They will tweet. They will Facebook message, but they don't ring.
1: Yeah, you know, because of the prevalence of email and texting today, actually, a great way to get heard is to write a handwritten note and mail it because nobody gets a handwritten note, so you're going to stand out if you do that. And the other possibility is just to call somebody. At least you can leave a voice message. They can hear what you sound like.
0: Yeah, you sound like a normal person. You're like, I'm more likely to return the call if I've heard the person's name.
1: But, you know, you can't do that for everything in life. But for something as pivotal as approaching uh, a person to be a coach or someone to join your advisory board for your new company, wow, there's nothing like personal communication.
0: That's unbelievable.
1: Photographs, by the way, photographs also help. If a person is starting a company and is trying to approach someone who could be useful to them, an investor or you know a potential advisor, sending a photograph attached to that email can be very powerful.
0: Yes, I 100% agree. I remember we were contacted by a university in Paris called HEC Paris that said, Come out, we want to talk to you about startup stuff. And when we're on the way out there, the head of entrepreneurship sent us a picture of himself. So we immediately, (laughs) Simon and I, took a selfie on the train and sent it back saying, We're on our way, can't wait to see you. And it was as if we were friends before we even showed up through those
1: selfies. Well, you know, people hearing that story might laugh a little bit, but. That's powerful stuff. And that's how you begin building a relationship.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Just as we sort of work on the the setting up story, why didn't you go straight into the coffee bar bit? That first place in Pike Market, mm-hmm. why didn't you build it as a coffee bar?
1: It was a conscious decision. We talked about it. Number one, the regulatory environment. That's a fine term. <laughs> <The> regulatory <laughs> environment. This is the rules of the county health department and the city would have required that we install bathrooms, um, WCs, one for each sex. And those bathrooms would have taken up uh, 200 square feet of our 1,200 square foot space. That's a problem. And it probably would have required double the amount of money that we had available to us. Bathrooms are one of the most expensive things, and then they're expensive to maintain. So we were interested in coffee beans in the first place. We weren't so interested in in opening a coffee bar. Remember, there was no real demand yet in our marketplace for coffee beverages. So we just avoided the whole subject in our first store and in in our next five stores, (laughs) which were all in Seattle. (laughs) We just never installed bathrooms and never served beverages. We had a great, profitable company really a wonderful company that was highly regarded by 1980 but only in Seattle.
0: See, I think what you've just said there is incredibly powerful because you you made it simple for yourself to be able to do it and you focused on the one key thing. I think that's so powerful avoiding that regulation and focusing on the main thing.
1: And it wasn't lunacy. The market we were in sync with our market and what our, our customers needs were.
0: So did you three co-founders grow it beyond Seattle?
1: We did not. That's an interesting story. The company was growing and hired a director of sales and marketing in about 1982. One of the best hires that any company has ever made, the company hired a a man from the East Coast named Howard Schultz, and he was a terrific uh, sales and marketing guy. By coincidence, a couple of years later, let me stop for a minute. Howard Schultz is the person who did the most to drive Starbucks to open coffee bars. He was really inspired on, a, on his first trip to Europe in about 1983. He went to a trade show in Milan, Italy. He saw espresso everywhere. In the airport, in the train station, at the conference hall, at, you know, in his hotel lobby, espresso was everywhere. And Howard observed that and he knew that is, serving beverages would be even more profitable than selling coffee beans. And that one didn't have to replace the other. You could do both. So he came back to Seattle after that conference, and he started pushing on the company to open coffee bars. And there were some experiments that worked very well. There was a joint venture between Howard Schultz and the founders that worked very well. And then there was a magic moment in about 1984 when Howard and a group of investors that he knew asked if they could buy Starbucks purchase it, which was still just a local company in Seattle. And as it turned out, my partners really wanted to sell. I had already exited the company by then and gone off to do other things. Uh, But the two uh, remaining founders, fortunately for Howard Schultz, the two remaining founders actually did want to sell, but they had been kind of quiet about that. So an arrangement was worked out. There was a transaction and Howard Schultz became CEO And one of the owners of what was then Starbucks Coffee Company in Seattle and proceeded immediately to make it a coffee bar company and to grow it across the United States. Wow. And then, you know, a decade later, he engineered the first overseas joint venture. Starbucks has grown overseas through joint ventures with local companies and the first one was in japan and it was wildly successful was it? today there are today there are a thousand starbucks stores in japan
0: so why did you leave zev why did you leave why did i leave yeah
1: why did you leave starbucks i left about uh, late 1980 i'm a startup guy i'm an early stage guy i know that about me i understand myself in that regard I'm not very comfortable in a big organization. I don't have the abilities that it takes. For instance, I have a a relatively short attention span, and I like a lot of tumult and things going on all the time. And I can deal with many things happening at once. So from about 1975 to 1980, I actually started several extra divisions of Starbucks. They were like intrapreneurship. I was opening new divisions within the company. Around 1980, My partners wisely sat down with me at one of our meetings and said, you know, Zev, you keep opening these new divisions and that's well and good. But, you know, we have a core business which is selling coffee beans, both wholesale and retail, and we've sort of begun experimenting a little bit with coffee bars. We think we should focus on that because (laughs) that's the most profitable part of our company. So we want to stop opening these extra divisions, the extra operations that uh, you're so good at and just focus on the core business. And I said, you know, that is really a great idea for Starbucks coffee. I separated myself from the company in that line of thinking and I allowed them to purchase my shares in the company and I exited. And the first thing I did was start another company. Not a coffee company.
0: Well, it's quite interesting. What you said, and uh, this resonates with me, is it's a different type of energy to start something than to push it through and focus and make it a success. And it's a completely different type of energy and focus for the two. When did you realize you were a startup guy?
1: (laughs) It's really interesting. Well, I can see it clearly now because I have not only opened other companies, but companies that no one's ever heard of. Not like Starbucks. (laughs) But I've also been an advisor to hundreds of startup entrepreneurs, hundreds of them. I've derived a tremendous education from these people. Although I'm doing a lot of talking here, I'm actually also a pretty good listener. And by listening to these people and analyzing their thinking, I've come to see myself more completely. And I know now, many years later, I know now that from the time I first was part of Starbucks, I was a startup guy, and that's the thing I really am good at. That's how my mind works. I have talents in that direction. Once you understand that, you know why wouldn't you start companies and then sell them?
0: And just keep why doing would you it. keep
1: them to the point where you wind up being useless to the company, or even worse, the business media online and in print um, are full of stories of entrepreneurs who stayed a little too long. <laughs> and the company didn't need them anymore. And I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be a person like that.
0: So that's really interesting because sometimes you get friction between the business partners if you've got those different skills. Between the three of you with such different skills, the co-founders of Starbucks, did you ever have friction about where you should be heading, what you should be doing? Did you ever have problems like that between the three of you?
1: You know, I'm... Fully cognizant of the, the fact that many partnerships do not work out. I understand that. I have worked with small companies that are growing rapidly and have two or three partners. And I've seen that some of them just don't work and that somebody has to leave and somebody has to say in the United States, by the way, smart entrepreneurs solve that problem by at the very beginning, before there is a company, they create what's called a buy sell agreement. And that's an American term And in that agreement. If there is a conflict that can't be resolved, one of the partners sets the price that he or she will exit at, and the other partner decides whether they're buying or selling.
0: Interesting.
1: It's a very good mechanism. It's like the old story about, you cut the cake and I'll choose. (laughs)
0: yes i get to choose which half which is always the best way
1: so that's called a buy sell agreement in the united states that can solve a lot of problems but it wasn't difficult for us to get along at all Uh, in when i think back uh, about my 10 years with the company a decade i don't remember any fights i don't think there were any remember we were good at different things so gordon Bowker, who i consider a marketing genius Marketing, especially at the conceptual level. I'm not talking about buying ads online. I'm, I'm thinking about the connection between your company and your customers. I would never doubt his ability in that area. I might ask questions to get more details about how he arrived at a particular decision. For instance, I'll give you an example. Gordon's point of view from the very beginning was that Starbucks, a brand new company in Seattle, Washington in 1971, should try to look like an old company that because of the long history of coffee 400 years that we should do everything we can to meld our company into that history and we had a very old fashioned looking logo our name Starbucks coffee appeared to be at first glance kind of very old these were the kinds of things we did we weren't like a, a reliquary you know we we didn't want to be old and dusty it was a new interpretation of an old idea Jerry Baldwin, uh, the other partner, he became a much better financial manager and uh, also especially good at forecasting than I have ever been in my life since. And it really served the company well to have on board somebody like that. But the fact that he was a much better financial executive than either Gordon or myself wasn't a problem. It wasn't a source of conflict. It was an asset. Is the opposite. So we, we managed to stay out of each other's territories for many years.
0: I love that. So after you left Starbucks, what did you do next? And how did you get well, into I coaching
1: entrepreneurs? Com- I opened a series of companies for the next 20, 25 years. And, Just 25 um, years? <laughs> over a long period of time. <laughs> um and uh, these were not tech companies. One of them was a, a, an equipment company. Another was a, a baking company that uh, had a central bakery and five outlets. There was uh, another one that provided, in the early days of the internet, uh, provided help to small businesses that were trying to figure out at that time how to establish websites and do search engine optimization, By which, it's still a great need for small businesses, in spite of the advent of social media. It's one of those things that you still got to be careful about. So, these were a series of very small companies.
0: And what was the point? You decided to transition to become an entrepreneurial educator or a speaker.
1: Uh, you know, at some point, many entrepreneurs become risk averse. <laughs> you know, you get to, you get to a point where you know you're you're financially safe and secure. And for me, it came when um, somebody approached me around the year 2000 and said, well, why don't we start this new company together? And I I thought, you know, I think I've had enough of that. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather take advantage of my other skill, which is enabling people to get where they want to go. And so I, ever since then, I have not done any uh, startups, but I have almost daily since about 2005, helped young entrepreneurs develop their concepts into something—the things that are needed to be successful—a a coherent financial forecast, and a business plan, and a study of the market. I love doing that, and it's fascinating, by the way, for everybody who is involved in enabling entrepreneurs to help them. It's just so interesting. It's—I I liken it to being the director of an opera company. That's what an entrepreneur is. They're trying to get the conductor, the musicians, the singers, the stagecraft people to all move in the same direction and to make a successful opening night. And I admire people that can do that, just like I admire uh, entrepreneurs. And sometimes a person from outside like uh, yourself, uh, Alan, or, or me, and thousands of other people around the world, sometimes we can see things from experience that the entrepreneur herself cannot see.
0: I think that's exactly right, because you become too close to your own business. And I can see it quite often very clearly for other people's businesses. But for mine, <laughs> it sometimes takes someone to come in and go, why aren't you doing the obvious thing, Alan?
1: There's a wonderful phrase in the US about that. You know, You, you might be talking to an entrepreneur and thinking, well, I can see that she really believes her own stuff, <laughs> and, 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 and what that means is she has talked herself into believing something that may or may not be true about her business. Another phrase for that is, uh, you know, from the awful Jonestown massacre, the she drank her own Kool Aid.
0: Drank the Kool Aid, yes.
1: <laughs> Which actually
0: is. Now, one of the things, my dad was an interesting entrepreneur. He was a character, but one of the things he was able to do was get himself to believe anything. And that was how he then was able to sell. And his superpower was his ability to sell came from an unshaking belief that he was doing the right thing. Even if he wasn't, he persuaded himself he was. And, like, that's a really dangerous power. <laughs> but a very important one when you're starting a business.
1: Yeah, but it's if you're an entrepreneur, say a young couple that has a great idea for a software product or a phone app, if you can get around you people who will ask you questions, people who have a little bit of experience, maybe someone like a, a woman who's actually started a company sort of similar to yours, but not a, the product isn't the same. As I said before, someone who has been where you want to go, that's a big help. It Just really like is coffee. a big help. Yeah, for us, Alfred Pete was that guy. And actually, I've been that guy for a number of people. But I've also observed many entrepreneurs who have terrific advisory boards, you know, three people who they meet with once a month who all are at a, currently at a higher stage of the same type of business or they've sold the business that they started and now they can help other people. Having a, an advisory board like that You don't have to pay them. They're usually people who are happy to spend a couple hours every quarter of the year being a part of a team to advise. These people can be immeasurably helpful. Not only can they help you see things more clearly than you can see yourself, but they can provide connections. Their friends might be useful to you also. So advisory boards is one of the little secrets for successful companies.
0: So how do you put one of those together? Like, What's the steps? Very
1: interesting. Good question, Alan. Now, I speak primarily here from experience in North America. But the way it works here is there is a strong tendency for people who uh, are being successful as attorneys or public accountants or uh, business people to give a little time each month to helping the less fortunate, the people who are just trying to enter their industries or people trying to start companies. It goes sometimes by the title of uh, giving back. It's a phrase you hear. I'm one of those people. So what you do if you're an entrepreneur is you think you try to write down the description of the person that you would like to meet. I'm working with a woman in Spain who is starting a phone app for dog owners. It's actually a platform connected to a phone app. And she really wanted to meet people who have been successful in the pet industry in any form not just in phone apps pet food you know pet retail and she is very good at research man she she's one of those people who knows how to manipulate the internet to find out what she wants to know so we were talking one day and she said you know there's this uh, woman who started a company in one of the european countries and she's the kind of person I'd like to get on my advisory board and we worked out a system where she actually contacted this woman who had this successful company. And then I contacted the woman also and said, the person who just contacted you, I really have been working with her. And I think you should talk to her. The woman I've never met. <laughs> and the result was that they got in touch. And now the experienced uh, executive is now on her advisory board. You just ask for the people who you think uh, would be ideal. In my country, it works most of the time especially if you approach, as we say, on bended knee, where you are you know, not too egotistical, you make it clear that you respect their knowledge and what help that they could provide. And you are clear also with them that it's not much of an involvement and you're not asking them to invest. That's another yes. very important point, because the minute people think you're asking them for money, then they're going to start running for the door to leave the room. <laughs> so you say, you know, I'm so-and-so, uh, you know, I live in this particular city, I'm starting a business, and this business has some things in common with a business that I'm pretty sure that you were a part of. Is that right? You know, she'll say yes. And then, you know, you, you make your case for how about you sign up for one meeting per quarter of the year, one meeting per quarter for two hours with me and two other advisors that I'm going to recruit, and we'll meet online. And the three of you who know so much more than I do can give me advice on what I'm doing right and wrong. That's a pretty unbeatable offer. If you happen to be a person who wants to give back a little, who wants to contribute to the success of somebody else and is in the same field as you. So it won't take you a lot of research. So a lot of people say yes to those kinds of requests. It's surprising.
0: I love that. What a great piece of advice. I love that. So for anyone listening This is the action. Think about who you would like to have on your advisory board for your business, describe them, and then make the phone call and approach them. Uh, Zev's given you the exact format of how to do it. And we'd love to know send us a message and let us know how did it go? Who did you get? What happened? We want to know that because the whole point of this podcast is to actually enable you to do things. Because there's no point talking about entrepreneurship. I want you to get in the game and do entrepreneurship. That's how you learn. And talking about that, Zev, you coach entrepreneurs now to help them. What do you think are most of the barriers that stop people from growing successful businesses? And are they real or imagined barriers?
1: That's a really great way to phrase that question, Alan. There are barriers for uh, entrepreneurs starting, especially their first company. The entrepreneur will tell you that the barrier is money. Yes. I can't get funded because this is my first business and nobody will loan me money. Nobody will buy equity in my company. I'm a for-profit company, so NGOs don't want to give me money, nonprofits. So what am I supposed to do? Um, actually, that isn't really the main problem often. It's fascinating to me. Almost everybody I talk to has, says to me in our first meeting, that getting funded is the big issue. I gradually turn the conversation to their financial forecast and their business plan and the amount of market research they've done. I'm not talking about something worthy of the the way a giant corporation would go about those things. I'm talking about the startup world here. And I personally I tend to focus on the financial forecast, just a basic financial forecast. In order to bring the attention of the entrepreneur to the important stuff. Like we need to make a profit at least in the second year in order to survive. And then we need to make a profit every year after that, or we're going to go out of business. And if we go out of business, that means my money, my family's money, because the family often invests and my friend's money, the friends invest and that angel investor that I recruited, they're all going to lose their money. If I don't do it correctly, the, Key to that, of course, is the financial forecast. And then having other people look at that forecast to see if all of the items have been accounted for and if they've been inserted in the financial forecast correctly. By that, I mean that they are sufficient, not too high, not too low. And then from that, the business plan can be made, the Word document. And that document just flows if you've already done the financial forecast. It's just very easy to do it at that point. So. You know, these are the real problems. Once you have a pretty good financial forecast and a coherent uh, business plan, it could be in the form of a PowerPoint slide deck or a, a Word document, then when you want the money, people will respect you because they can tell that you've been doing all the homework that's necessary, all the preliminaries. So I can give you uh, your, your audience, an example, imagine a conversation that you're having with uh, a friend of a friend who might be interested in investing in your new software product and you're having a nice long conversation with them and you're, you know, waving your arms and talking about the future and, um, uh, and the prospective investor notices that he hasn't heard one single number from you. It's all been words. Customers are going to love it. It's going to save them time. Uh, You know, it's going to make their lives better. Uh, It's a great product. On and on and on you go. And finally, the investor turns to you and says, "Uh, what's your unit cost for this product? What's your, uh, your initial selling price? And what about the improved version later on? What's the selling price going to be for the level two product? And the investor just wants to hear the numbers and you don't have them. That is, if you don't have the numbers the conversation with that investor is going to end pretty quickly because they will see that you are an ideas person and you have no concept of how to make money. That's a problem. And one of the things that I spend a lot of time, the people I work with generally know they have to make money and uh, they have some idea how to, but any advisor or coach will always Go in that direction, and try to enable the entrepreneur to be able to articulate exactly how the company is going to survive,
0: which it is unbelievable how many entrepreneurs can't answer the basic numbers about their business.
1: yeah, it's really true, Alan, but it doesn't have to be that way. And for your listeners who are you know recoiling in fear at this point <laughs> because they are the because maybe they happen to be, a 25-year-old man or woman who isn't very good at financial matters, at doing forecasts, working in Excel documents, those kinds of things. That's okay. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be what we call in this country, my country, an Excel jockey, a person who can play with Excel and make the numbers just look fabulous. The problem can be solved. You can find someone who will help you. And you can either pay them or get them to volunteer their time if they have a little bit of extra time, or maybe they'll become a partner of yours. And you will then have solved the crippling problem of a company that has no financial ability at all. Now, in my case, with my most famous startup with Starbucks, Jerry Baldwin solved that. He was a good financial manager. He learned to be a good financial manager, I should say. It is okay to have a deficiency such as, you know, I'm not, I'm really good with the numbers. It's not okay to try and compensate for it. you got to compensate for that. And it usually involves another person. Yes, combining
0: with someone else to find the skills that you don't have or learning them yourself. And a basic understanding of the numbers and the figures is critical for everyone to have.
1: By the way, one of the great sources of free help for entrepreneurs who are not so good at doing financial work is the many startup organizations, entrepreneurship support organizations, some of which serve their clients at no cost. These are all over the world. I have seen them in you know, Saudi Arabia and South Africa, everywhere. And you just have to search them out. And they, usually there are people there who can sit down with you and turn your idea into a financial forecast at no cost.
0: So, Zev, one of the things you said earlier was when you stop doing startups – You'd got to a stage where you like you became more risk averse, you wanted less risk in your world. i like, I always find it interesting that people think entrepreneurship is risky. Does it <laughs> always have to be because I'm scared of risk. I don't
1: like risk Alan, you're a wise person um there is a <laughs> there there is a whole an entire field called risk management, and smart entrepreneurs who are starting companies that actually do have some risk can reduce their risk through risk management techniques. Clearly, one of the risk management techniques is to get help with your financial forecast. That reduces your risk. Another example is to study your competition. And everybody has competition. There are entrepreneurs who believe they don't, but they do. And the reduction of risk, you can never eliminate it completely, but the reduction and the management of risk is important. It's just a pervasive field for business.
0: One of the ways you reduce risk when you started Starbucks was by borrowing less money, but making the furniture yourself. So you've reduced the risk by doing that. In the very
1: first period, that's correct. If we could have borrowed money, which we couldn't at that time, but suppose we could have, suppose somebody would have loaned us the money, it would have created quite a high level of risk because we would have had to make payments on that money, principal and interest payments, and that would have been crippling at that time.
0: So you risk time, you risk energy, you risk your fingers getting a nail in them when you're making a furniture. But you didn't risk as much money.
1: Yeah, we also risked six months of our young lives. We were twenty-six <laughs> years old, and you know, when you're twenty-six, I would like to think that every hour counts. You know, you'd really have to get your life going uh, so that by the time you're, say, forty, that you've actually gotten to the point where you're not struggling constantly.
0: Well, I'm, I've just turned 40. I'm 41 now, Zev. And uh, I think now every hour counts even more than it did when I was 26. (laughs) At 26, I thought I had a lot of time. At 41, I'm thinking I better get on with this stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I see that, Alan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of things I want to do. Zev, this has been incredible. I've loved the thoughts, the comments and the idea. If you could give us a a punch list, a snagging list, a list of things for entrepreneurs to take away and think about, what would you give to the audience?
1: To um, an entrepreneur who has an idea for a business, even if it's just the most basic kind of business, not software and phone apps. Let's set that aside. Something more common that people understand, like say opening a small cafe, I would say the things that several things I've already mentioned during this conversation, which is sit down with someone and figure out how you're gonna survive financially, how you make money and how you're gonna do more of that, whatever it is that makes you money, how you're going to do it. And uh, surround yourself with people who will advise you, people who have been at the next stage of development. For example, if you're starting a food business that eventually is going to be a restaurant, you could start with a food card or a stand at a, um, a market. Acquainted with customer reactions to what you're doing, and then eventually, maybe in this country, you would have a food truck, uh, mobile catering uh, set up. There are lots of them where I live. And uh, then the next progression is a four-wall facility, which today would probably be a takeout. And then eventually, after um, life gets back to normal, it could have seating in it. This is a progression. Uh, It reduces risk. It's a smart way to operate. There is an expression that uh, I hear all the time, which is walk before you run. And what that means in the business world is try it on a small scale before you try it on a big scale. And this is absolutely key. And I know you, Alan, have uh, been working tirelessly to get people to start small and get a fundamental understanding of how their idea is going to translate into a real live functioning business.
0: Yes, Simon and I call the mini experiments, like run the mini experiment at the farmer's market. See if it sells. Talk to the customers before you go. Don't jump straight to borrowing 200 grand to open your first store. Like, let's run the experiments. And uh, thank you. That is exactly what I want entrepreneurs to do as well.
1: Yeah, it's, it's smart. It's a great way to operate.
0: Zev, what's the final thing you'd love to leave ringing in people's ears to send them away with?
1: Well, it might surprise you. If you are an entrepreneur and follow your advice, Alan, and the advice of other good advisors, you might arrive at the end of the research phase with a business plan that isn't very pleasing to you. What you have learned in the process of doing three months of research, the result is a financial forecast that doesn't look that good. It doesn't look like you can make enough of a profit to make the business worth your while. What some entrepreneurs do at that point is go for it. Or as Nike used to say in their advertising, just do it. (laughs) And that's not a business strategy. Just do it. (laughs) Um, I think it's very important after doing the research and, you know, working with others to get the insight that if you arrive at a point where it just doesn't seem to be right, you can modify the idea. Maybe it's a modification that you would have rejected at the beginning, but the modification changes the idea to make it profitable. Maybe you decide that it's just not going to work and you, you know in your heart that you should not do this. And I would say, you're right, don't do it. It's perfectly okay to develop a plan for an idea, to get enthusiastic about it, to talk to other people about it, and then to say, I did my homework and I decided it was going to be a sure failure and I wasn't going to throw away my money and my friends' and family's money doing that. It's okay to walk away from a bad idea. And why do I say that? Because anyone who can think of one good idea will, within a month, think of another good idea. And you can start working on that one and eventually you'll hit it. I should tell you that at the time that my partners and I in Starbucks, this was in uh, the fall of 1970, developed the idea for a coffee company. We were also we had a list of four or five other ideas that we had been researching and either the ideas were bad weren't going to make money, or we were the wrong people to do them. We just didn't have what it would take to make that idea, that third idea on the list there, to make that idea work. So we threw away ideas that would have caused us a lot of trouble, but we researched each one of them. And when it came time to research this interesting idea to start a coffee roasting company, we discovered that it was a good idea and that we could do it ourselves. So I would encourage people to be very careful about the ideas they do pursue and it's okay to drop a bad one. Just kiss it goodbye.
0: That piece of advice of saying goodbye to the bad idea is so important. So important because I've just pushed through at times going, I have to make this idea happen and realizing that not all my ideas are good ideas. (laughs) Some of them are dreadful. Of my ideas.
1: That's only Alan because you're a human being. Um, <laughs> I'm and, trying to get and, over it. Yeah, and uh, it's a little bit like breaking up a intimate relationship. You know, you and the idea. There's a lot of depression and longing. <laughs> um, oh, I wish that had worked. But it's again, I just want to say that if a person has a great idea and researches, and it just doesn't look that good, it's okay to drop it because that same person will think of another idea.
0: Zev, thank you so much for the advice, the energy, the information. It has been so powerful. For everyone listening, if you want to find out more about Zev, go to Zev Siegel, which is spelt S-I-E-G-L dot com and check it out there. Zev, you are a legend. Next time I'm in Seattle, I'm going to come and say hello and hang out. Thank you so much for giving your wisdom so freely.
1: Alan, I look forward to that cup of coffee, sitting down and enjoying your company whether it's here or in London. And I wish you the best of luck.
0: Thank you for listening to the Zev Siegel episode. And I've been so excited to share this one with you. And thank you for being part of the podcast. I designed this podcast to help inspire you to build the life you want to live. And I know it's about entrepreneurship and I know it's about sales, but it's about so much more than that. It's about building the life you really want. And that's actually, what I want you to take away from this episode is you can create any life you want. So let's start building it. And I don't care whether that's an entrepreneurial business. I don't care whether that's being financially independent. I don't care whether you use a job to get to financial independence. Nothing wrong with a job. Jobs can be incredible. There are some amazing ones out there. What I really care about is your happiness and you building the life you want to build. And that happens by taking steps, by making things happen, by slowly working on it. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it, keep working on it, keep learning, keep improving, keep going, because you can do it. I believe in you. You can make this happen. (sighs) Keep going. So the next episode, which you'll be listening to, which I'm very excited to share with you, I have an expert on innovation from Silicon Valley, Jennifer Vessels, and she will be talking about the myths of Silicon Valley. Because when you listen to the podcasts about entrepreneurship, there's so much about venture capital, raising big money, exit strategies, and all of those types of things. We're going to talk about that and how that differs from the type of entrepreneurship that we talk about on this show. And then she very generously offered to coach one of the businesses as well. And on episode five, I'm very excited for this one. Jennifer's coming back and I thought, what is the business that is furthest away from Silicon Valley? And what came to mind was one of the past participants from the Reading Pop-Up Business School. His name's Adam and he started a craft box club. So he sends you a sustainable box of items to do crafting at home each month. And I thought a craft box club from Reading, England is kind of the furthest you can get from an high tech, (laughs) innovative Silicon Valley business. So it'll be really interesting to hear Jennifer coaching Adam how to grow his business. That's episode five. Then episode six, got something a little bit different for you because this will be the first episode that is just me no one else on the show. It's just me. And it's about creating the life of your dreams. So I would love to know what you think about that. And then the kind of season rolls on from there. Episode seven is about innovation and identity. Eight is about creativity. And I've got Travis Shakespeare on the show, which I'm so excited about. And it rolls on. So thank you for listening. If you want to find out more, if you want to sign up to the mailing list, you get the emails when I do cockamamie experiments or tell you about what's going on, then visit alandonegan.com and look up the podcast page. You can stick in your information there and I'll email you when we're doing an experiment or what we're doing or all of that stuff. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for being part of it. Please go out there and start working to create the life of your dreams. You can have any life you want to. Choose to build something cool. Choose to take action. Choose to work to make your dreams become reality. Stand out. Be different. Be yourself. Be a Rebel Entrepreneur.